All right. Now, if you, if you were to walk around Princeton today, you walk out of here, it's going to be 70 degrees because God loves you. <laughs> uh, now, don't ask me why it's 20 degrees sometimes. I don't know what that means. But you would see various statues and sculptures all over. This is a very, you know, as far as a place goes, this is a place with a lot of those kinds of things. If you walk over to Palmer Square, you'd see a tiger that looks kind of like this one. Zechariah, like, you got the, my tiger? Yeah, right? And you'd be like, wow, somebody made that. And they're just statues. They're symbolic of the Princeton University mascot. Some of you are Princeton students. Uh, you have that tiger spirit, right? Do they, is that a thing they talk about? Probably not. No, no. Just forget I said it. Now contrast this, this notion. You're walking around, you're seeing these statues and these figurines with the Apostle Paul as he walks through the, the streets of Athens in Acts 17, first century Athens. He's walking around. He sees all these statues. And the text tells us that the, in this city that was dedicated to inspiration, to wisdom, to higher learning, that Paul, as he walks around the streets of ancient Athens, is looking around, and he's seeing all these statues that aren't all that different from this kind of statue that we see in Princeton, but it says that he is distressed because the city is filled with idols. And as Paul looks around, there's statues and figures that he sees carved are likenesses of something uh, beyond them, a force of divinity, often with names and promised blessings, like the patroness uh, of the city of Athens itself, Athena. She promised wisdom. And in Paul's day, in metropolitan cities like Athens and Corinth, there were gods everywhere. The Romans... The imperial power of that day allowed for a relative plurality of religious expression. As long as your ultimate religious allegiance was reserved for the empire. They said, you can worship whoever you want. Do, do whatever you like. But when it comes time for you to pay homage to the emperor or to the empire, when it comes time to give your allegiance, that will be your ultimate allegiance. So the question that we have to begin to ask ourselves is what has changed? Because likely, if you saw these statues, I would suspect that you have not been tempted to worship them, to venerate them as some symbol of the city and to say, I honor you, Tiger of Palmer Square. Please bless me. That probably has not been your response. But in Paul's culture, in this city that he's in, and in many cultures still in our day, I spent some time in Shanghai, and I was with a friend, we were walking around the city center, and he points to me and he says, that's the city god. And I said, oh, the city god, right? And so in many cultures that some of you guys are very familiar with, this is not something that's at form, but something has changed where walking around and seeing these kinds of sculptures, we have very different responses from one culture to the next. Now, the question that we begin to ask ourselves is, have we as a culture moved beyond what, what eventually is idolatry in the ancient world? Are we just more sophisticated than they were? Or is there something else going on? Now, the first question, is there just, it's just as simple as we know more now, right? The ancients lived in what philosopher Charles Taylor calls an enchanted universe. The processes of nature, harvest, sickness, disease, good fortune, success in battle, the birth of children, were not just products of natural mechanisms, though the ancients were not ignorant of those correlations, but they, all of these things were a manifestation of, you know, for the good things, the blessing and the favor of a god or goddess, or the bad things, 
the cursing, the judgment of a god or goddess. Now, is it just simply that in our modern world that science has allowed us to understand the cause and effect, cyclical nature of how things work? Again, is this just a natural progression and evolution of human society, or is there something else going on? Friedrich Nietzsche told a parable of a madman who went into the city center holding a lantern, smashed it on the ground, and said, I have killed God. God is dead. But we misunderstand idolatry if we simply look at the behaviors associated with it. Again, we sort of see like the impulse to worship a statue for us. is like that's a Western sort of cultural perspective. That's, that's a little strange, right? And Nietzsche was declaring something that seemed to be evident, that seemed to be a part of the way that the world was going. But if we look at the behaviors and the goals of the worship or the veneration or the sacrifice that the ancients were offering, we are met with a different reality. Idols hold something in their hands. And this is going to be so important as we're talking about through this Lenten series, idolatry. And what I'm trying to do, first of all, is just hopefully bring you in on the inside and just say this is still a thing for us today. And idols... Hold something in their hands, be it safety, comfort, fertility, vengeance, justice, security for a nation or a city, wisdom, power, sex, love, wealth, even eternal life in heaven. There's always the thing that's behind the thing. Now, whereas we may not be tempted to bow down to statues and figurines, those are things that we are all seeking after in various ways. And over the course of this series, we're going to unpack the ways that we elevate these simple matters, these things that we all want and need into the status of the, the everlasting God. There's always the thing behind the thing. Some of the most powerful and alluring gods in the ancient pantheon were the goddesses like Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and the erotic, Mammon, the god of wealth, Mars, the god of war and power, it's quite interesting then that perhaps the three most influential thinkers of the 19th and 20th centuries were Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Freud's conclusion, to vastly oversimplify it, was it's all about sex. Sounds like Aphrodite. Marx, describing the struggle of the classes, determined that it's all about money. Sounds like mammon. And Nietzsche, for all the rumors of the death of God, said it's all about power that might makes right. Sounds like Mars. Perhaps the gods don't go so quietly into the dark night. Perhaps we've not evolved as much as we initially suppose. Biblical scholar Christopher J.H. Wright says, The old gods may have changed their names or lost their personal names altogether in favor of more abstract concepts and phrases, things like patriotism, the free market, economic growth, national security, etc. But they can still wield enormous power in the popular mindset. Power we ourselves give to them as deified human constructs. And they still tend to solidify and justify the power of the powerful, and the wealth of the wealthy, and the sacrifices of the rest, which all gods demand. And today, as we start a teaching series on idolatry, I simply want to invite you into this reality. The Bible warns us against idolatry. 
And that warning is not the echo of a bygone age for a people that were less evolved than we. That warning is a clarion call that we do well to heed in our own modern and postmodern age. And I, I just want to give you the big idea of this teaching right now. The Bible urgently warns against worship and serving idols because we become like what we worship. What we worship, we will become like. We will be shaped in its image. We can either receive God's call for all of his blessing and glory to be bestowed upon us as his children. That is what awaits us. That is the promise of Jesus, that everything that he holds in his hand, he offers to us. We can receive that, and that is a gift of grace. It is free. Or we can exchange that glory for a lie and find ourselves diminished, dehumanized, and deformed. But just to say it simply today, we become like what we worship. As James K. S. Smith says, you are what you love. Now first, I want to turn over to Exodus 32. This story is the sort of the, the paradigmatic story of idolatry in the scriptures. Exodus 32, if you have a Bible or you have a phone with an app on it, you can turn over there. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long at coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, perhaps you're familiar with this story. Perhaps you grew up in church and the story of the Exodus is somewhat familiar with you. Perhaps not. I just want to go over a couple of the main details in the story that bear mentioning here. First of all, these people come to Aaron and demand gods to follow they, they come to Aaron and they say, make us some gods. And these are the same people that not, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe a year earlier, God had literally liberated from slavery. These are the same people that had seen a body of water, a sea, part into two very different directions. And they were able to walk through the sea on dry land. Now, you would suppose... That if you saw something like that in your life, you would not start questioning God when Moses was away for 40 days, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I sometimes judge these people. I'm like, yo, like, you walked through dry land, through an ocean, through a literal, like, vast body of water. And, like, Moses has been gone for a couple weeks. And you're like, oh, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know about that God that parts the water. We need some new gods. It's a bit strange. Not only that, during all of the journey out of Egypt, as they left slavery in Egypt, during that entire journey, they were accompanied by this mysterious pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These people could see God. They were like, where's God? He's right there. It's the weird column of cloud and fire. Like You would think Again, that that would be enough to sustain you in moments of doubt and questioning. You'd be like, you know what? I'm not sure what's going to happen next, but I remember that fiery column that followed us around and that everybody said was the presence of the divine God. Okay, I think I'm good. 
Not only that, but God in this barren wilderness, this place that doesn't grow land, this place that doesn't have an abundant supply of water, in that place, God kept providing food and water for them miraculously. Again, these things at some point start stacking up. And yet, Moses is gone for a couple weeks, and they come to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, who doesn't deter them for reasons unknown, and says, and they say to Aaron, we need some gods. We need something to follow. We need something to worship. And they break the first commandment that God had given them in Exodus 20, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. This is the first one. It says, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first thing that God says to them. Just don't do this. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Moses, as the leader of the people, as the, the sort of ambassador between heaven and earth, was away from the people. And for some strange reason, even though they had seen all that we had just talked about, all these incredible, miraculous, like world-changing things, even though they had seen that, they come to Aaron and they say, hey, we need some gods. David Foster Wallace in 2005 gave a famous commencement speech, and you've probably heard it referenced multiple times at Kenyon College. And it's really more of a sermon than a speech. And he says in this speech, he says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Now, David Foster Wallace was not a follower of Jesus in any way that we would conceive of it. If you can get through the book Infinite Jest, I will give you a cookie. Fantastic, very hard. <laughs> a lot of people like to pretend they've read it, so <laughs> you can also do that. There is no such thing, David Foster Wallace says, as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And what we see here in Exodus 32 as we begin this teaching series is that there is no vacuum of worship in our life. We can't not worship. Worship is our native tongue. It's what it means to be human. The first words spoken by humans in the scriptures are worship to God, praise to God at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The question for us today, Ecclesia, is not will you worship. The question for us, more rightly, is who or what will you worship? And the question, as we will see, has so many implications for the way that our world takes shape. In Exodus 32, the people take their earrings of gold and turn them into a golden calf of worship. Now, it's so sad because when the people of Israel, when the people of God had left Israel, the people of Egypt were so distraught by what God was doing in their midst, these plagues and these judgments that God was bringing upon Egypt because they were enslaving his people. They were so distraught themselves that they basically paid the children of Israel to leave. They said, take our gold, take our stuff and get out of here. We don't want to suffer any longer. They had literally, a nation of slaves that had been oppressed for 400 years had plundered Egypt and taken the wealth of Egypt with them. And notice what happens in this story. As these people need these handmade gods to follow, Aaron says, take off your earrings of gold. The blessing that God had provided for them 
the, the, the payment that God had provided for them, this sort of like liberation, reparation that God had provided for them was now thrown into the fire and made into a sad idol for them to bow down to. The God of the universe had parted the seas. He had given them a blessing to sustain them in the wilderness, sort of a down payment on the rest of their life, a down payment on the promised land. And they take that and they throw it into the fire and they cast it into an image. Christopher Wright warns us, as we see this scene results in so much violence and cursing and judgment, the scene in Exodus 32, Christopher Wright, by biblical scholar, says that idolatry is radical self-harm. Taking the blessing that God has given to us, taking the glory that he has imparted to us, and using it for lesser things. And the most important and urgent call to the resistance of idols is because just as humans are creatures, you didn't make yourself. You were made and fashioned. And if you believe the story that Jesus is telling, and I do, you were made by a God who loves you and knows you, who formed you in the womb. You know, there was such a beautiful moment here. None of those kids will remember any of the words that were spoken over them today. Not a single one. But those words make worlds. Those words of blessing that were spoken over them far before they could ever comprehend the depth of them, far before they know what it means for their parents to love them, are shaping their life and their reality. And Ecclesia, God has been going before you, rejoicing over you. He only made one you, and he made you to bear his image of glory in the world. This is who our God is. Those words of blessing were spoken over you long before you showed up. You are a creature, but you are a beloved creature of God, a son and a daughter called into the inheritance of Jesus. Genesis 1 tells us that we were made to bear the image of God in the world, to become more like our heavenly father. But idolatry is a radical diversion from that path. And the apostle Paul makes this explicit in Romans chapter 1. And I want to read this to you. Uh, this section of Romans 1, because it puts in such stark reality what idolatry does to us. Verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Paul is sort of talking generically about all of humanity, specifically those who would be called Gentiles in his day, people that are outside the Jewish nation, outside the people of Israel. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, Paul's statement, as it always is, is in Romans, is a part of a much longer, larger argument that's sort of wound together in this really complex and beautiful way. And so I want to illustrate this point without chopping up this passage too much. But look at what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. It says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made by a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now this, for Paul's imagination, is an allusion back to Genesis 3. 
The first humans, Adam and Eve, were called to bear the image of God, as we've talked about, blessed with the glory of God, and called to reveal that God, that glory in increasing likeness to their father and creator. God told them in the garden, he said, you're free to eat from any tree, any one of them, but just don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve saw that this tree that God had forbidden to them was useful for making one wise, and they took and they ate it. And in Paul's language, they exchanged the glory of God by trying to achieve that glory. They saw that the fruit that God had forbidden to them was useful. They tried to achieve that glory on their own, but it was the glory that God had always promised to them. They took the things of creation and tried to become like the Creator. And this is Satan's promise. The day that you take this thing, the day that you serve an idol, the day you bow down to something less than God, then you'll become like God. But idols never keep their promises because they can't. Idols promise us one thing and end up calling for payment in so many different ways. And instead of delivering on what is promised, the tree here, the fruit, the serpent does not lead to greater glory, but mires the people, Adam and Eve, the first people, in in shame and nakedness and and toil and the curse. Elsewhere throughout the scriptures, idols are described as being unable to see, to hear, to move, or to save. Just for instance, Jeremiah 51. He says, for everyone is stupid and without knowledge. That's not you guys. That's everybody else. Goldsmiths are all put to shame by their idols, for their images are false, and there is no breath in them. In the biblical imagination, breath is is the power of God, the Ruach Elohim, God's very presence and life force breathed in. David Foster Wallace puts this concept that we become what we worship, and that when we worship things that aren't God, we are left unsatisfied so beautifully and so well. And he says this, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, DFW knew about Aphrodite, Mammon, and Mars. And worship of the true God leads to something quite different. If we become like what we worship, then God is inviting us into a, a better thing, into flourishing transformation. Worshiping idols leads to dehumanizing deformation. And it's so fascinating that so many of us try to become our true selves every single way except bowing before the God who made us. We find all of these things to wrap our identity up in or our purpose in. Whether it be like things that are like at their heart are good things. Things like success or hard work or things that we know are a bit destructive. But promise all these things that we think we want and need. We try all these ways to achieve the glory that God gives us for free. And so God invites us to flourishing transformation. 
But our idol worship leads us to dehumanizing deformation. It doesn't just happen at an individual level. This is not about individual units responding either the right way or the wrong way. What this begins to do is it pervades into society. Paul talks about principalities and powers that are basically human constructs. These, these things that have been made powerful and strong by our giving our allegiance and our worship to them. And so many times the societal and systemic injustices we see are a product of an accumulation of idolatry. Accumulation of us failing to live out the, the glory of God that we were called to bear. Paul picks up on this in, at the end of Romans 1. He says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. Uh, they No fidelity, no love, no mercy. Paul is just like rattling off. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Really, if you just read the second half of Romans 1, it's describing a society that's lost its mind in idolatry. And throughout the scriptures, we see that idols demand sacrifices. And that which is sacrificed to obtain some sort of comfort or power is ultimately people and our own sense of self. We exchange the glory of God for created things. Okay, that's all very heavy. And almost you could sort of look at the world and be like, okay, that's sort of a, a different slant maybe, but sort of describes the brokenness that I see often. But that's not the question of the gospel. The question that God has for us is what do we do? Romans is an extended, winding argument that Paul offers a return to this theme of darkened hearts and minds. As he picks up in Romans 1, he says, When we bow down to idols, we become darkened and futile. We become unable to, unable to see. And in Romans 12, Paul says, But the grace of God is not leave us to our own devices. He says, I appeal to you, Romans 12, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is essentially saying to each one of us that our lives have been unraveled because of the sacrifices that idolatry demands. Your thinking has grown dark, but there is another way. And that way is the way of mercy. I can see it. I stand before you today hiding my idols. There are things that are not in plain sight. As when we walk the streets of Princeton, those things that we so easily venerate and worship are not in plain sight. We don't always have names for them, but I am an idolater. I'm a person who elevates things over God, over God constantly. And God doesn't say, oh my gosh, how could you? God offers his way of mercy and says, quit settling for lesser things and lesser ways and keep being called to my path of transformation. Keep allowing God to form you, as, as Colossians says, to conform you to the image of his son in Christ Jesus. There is a better way. By the mercy of our God, 
You see, the God of the universe doesn't demand a sacrifice in exchange for blessing. Jesus of Nazareth gives his life as a sacrifice for us. Paul's call here is to be a living sacrifice, not one whose life is snuffed out on the altar of sacrifice, but one who finds life and freedom because we have said to God, what you have said of me is true, and I give my life and my heart over to you. The pattern of this world is one of idolatry, and as Paul says, it suppresses the truth. We think that we are wise in our own minds. And what the story of Jesus tells us is that those who thought they were wise were really the ones who were arrayed against the good purposes of our God. But we can be freed from this slavery because of our relationship with the one true God, because of Jesus. And Jesus calls us to a renewal of our minds, which begins with clearly seeing the light and the darkness. Where are the places that we have worshipped things that aren't God? Jesus died, Ecclesia, to liberate us from their clutches. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 6, when we offer our bodies as instruments of sin, we become slaves to sin. He says the wages of sin are death. Idols are objects and they promise all sorts of things. And if we give our lives to them, they cannot satisfy and they will always leave us wanting more. They will always deform us in their image. We become what? We worship. The worship of idols dehumanizes us. It diminishes us. It deforms us. We become like them, not living into the glory that God has given us in the beginning and restored by the act of love and the life, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Ecclesia, today, as we start this heavy sort of series, I want to just tell you, like there's, there's sort of two things going on here. First of all, like, we can reject that assessment of ourselves and say, oh, I'm not, that's, I'm not that bad. Like, idols, I mean, come on. I'm not bound down to statues in my closet or anything like that. We can sort of point and push away. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say at one, at one and the same time, he's saying, look, idolatry reveals the brokenness, the ways that we have strayed from this path. But it also is an invitation to receive the grace of God. To not hide in your own sort of castle of sand that you have built where nobody can see inside, but to allow God's grace to come near. And so today, I simply want to invite you to see that God is inviting us to his radical transformation, to a renewal of our minds, to not be wise in our own eyes, but to receive the blessing and the love and the grace of the creator God. And we do so simply by acknowledging as we begin this Lenten series, that we don't have it all together. And what a freeing acknowledgement. What a freeing admission that we don't do everything perfectly and that there is a God who loves us and came to restore us to himself. This is his call and his invitation as we begin this Lenten series to lay down our idols, to receive the glory of God that he gives to us as a free gift. And to step into our inheritance as his daughters and his sons. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. All idols demand sacrifice. And Jesus doesn't come demanding sacrifice, but comes giving, showing. Giving his life, taking the first step towards us. And today, 
We simply respond to the grace that is made manifest in Christ Jesus, that His love for us doesn't wait on us to figure it out, doesn't wait on us to have it all together, but makes the first step. And as the band begins to lead us in this song response, I just simply want to invite you to reflect, where is God saying, like, I want to draw near to your life, but you're going to have to let go of this. You're going to have to lay this down. Because Ecclesia, he's already done the thing to move close to you. But so often we push and we reject and we hold on and we clutch the things, our little handmade gods. And God is saying to us, put them down. Accept the embrace of heaven. Accept the embrace of the cross that Jesus, as he is nailed to the cross for our sins, for our idolatry, for all the product of our evil and our wickedness. It's an embrace of the entire world. You see, the cross reveals our idolatry, but even more, it reveals the grace and the love of the Father.